Ayers on the Road, Parenting in a Modern World. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hello, listeners. It's Richard and Linda Ayer with Ayers on the Road. And we are about, we have been on the road and we are about to go on the road again. Wow, we have really been on the road, I have to say. The real Um, road. How about the the Pakistani roads and the Dubai roads and the Abu Dhabi roads? Absolutely. We have had quite an adventure in the last couple of weeks. Um, We first flew into Dubai, which we've been to several times, but wow, every time we see something new, this time we went, um, we've seen the big, huge buildings. We've been to the top of the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world, So, um, and several other the gorgeous buildings there. So this time we went to the old Dubai and the spice markets. And wow, did we have fun. Linda was just jamming her bags full of spices, and I kept saying, I don't think you're going to get that on the plane. And she said, well... I have to because I need to cook with all these spices, and you, Mr. Richard, will be the beneficiary. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we had such a good time there. We did a meeting with a group of church people, actually. The last time we were in Dubai, in the middle of the Arab world, we assumed that there was not our church. And uh, this time we realized that it's everywhere. There are uh, members of our church everywhere. So we did a lovely meeting there, and then... We went over to Abu Dhabi, where we met with some true Arabs. Um, it was so fun and so interesting. Um, one of my main interest points was the arranged marriages. Um, several of them were in Abu Dhabi, and then we went on to Pakistan, and almost every uh, one of the 20 couples that were there had had an arranged marriage. So did I have fun sitting at the table with the women having them tell me about their stories? Well, you know, I think that's a hard thing for most Americans to understand. Like, how could how could anyone be happy if their parents find them a spouse and arrange their marriage? Well, let me tell you something: their their divorce rate is a lot lower than ours, and the whole the whole theory of it. And I'm certainly not advocating this, although. Frankly, we do have one son. I'd love to arrange his marriage, but uh, yeah, absolutely. The, the whole theory is that when a marriage occurs, it is two families joining together, and the best way to accomplish this, according to this theory, is the parents work together with another set of parents who they know, whose family they respect, who has a lot in common with them, and arrange for a potential marriage between their son and their daughter. But then. In a modern age that we live in now, and most of these people we were talking to are college-educated, many of them educated in Europe or the U.S., so they're they're not by any means Bedouins or people who don't know what's going on in the world. But the point is, once their families have selected someone, then they have a period of time, I heard everything from three to six months, where they get to know that person and then say yay or nay on the arrangement. But it seems to me, Linda, that most of the times they say yes. It's quite amazing. Um, it's a new world, they say. You know, it's different than it used to be. We met an older couple. I think they were about 70 who had uh, never seen each other until their wedding day. And they had not only had some wonderful children, but they built an empire in Pakistan, a furniture empire. And we went to their home and had such a delightful time. 
And they're actually their daughter-in-law who lives with them. That's another issue. As soon as these arranged marriages happen, the daughter goes to live with the son's family forever. So the daughter, um, the, the, the new wife, essentially, the daughter-in-law or the new wife, essentially uh, is under the, I don't know the right word, the tutelage, but also the authority of the mother-in-law. Mother-in-law. In other words, the mother of the son she married. And you might say, oh my gosh, it gets worse and worse. But I'll tell you, these extended families, and again, I'm not advocating this. I'm just saying let's not judge them too quickly. Because these extended families living under the same roof with families that like each other and got together in the first place are really quite wonderful. I have to agree with that. They, I mean, of course, we only met them for a few hours, so I'm sure there are some issues. But at the same time, someone told me that the divorce rate was one percent in their family, and yeah, another that may be a little. That may be a little bit of an exaggeration to the lower. Well, for their family, 1%. though, I mean, really, you know, different families are different. But they did say it could be as high as thirty percent now in the modern world, but still, we're over 50, and so it's just quite quite amazing. I did talk to one little gal who said she was promised to, she promised to be engaged to this man when she was 15, so they had a five-year engagement, and another said six-month engagement, and the engagement means you just get online and start telling each other how you feel and what yeah. you believe, and, and then you decide whether or not you're uh, compatible after that amount of time, and when the time comes, there you go. And in India and Pakistan, there is a 10-day wedding ceremony. <laughs> I sat by a darling young mother of three little children who told before me about... You go, before, before you go a little further into that story, honey, let me just say one sort of preface thing that will help listeners to appreciate this story more. And, and I hope I don't offend anyone in saying this, but I really want to call this straight. We're talking here about Muslims, of course. These are members of the Islam faith. They are followers of Muhammad. They are people who are in many cases despised by the West because of their small, extreme end of their religion, the extremists that are terrorists. And, but I, I want to tell you, this, take it or leave it, this is just Richard Iyer saying what he believes. The vast majority of Muslim families are outstanding, and they're, they're oriented to their family about as much as any people in the world that we've ever met. And they are embarrassed and sickened by the extremist groups that call themselves Muslims. So I just wanted to say that, because we don't want you listening and say, oh my gosh, the Iyers are in love with terrorists here. These are wonderful family people, and their traditions and their customs, particularly when it comes to arranged marriages and families living together as extended families, are very different than ours. But our whole point to you is, what can we learn from this? And there are some things we can learn. A marriage between two families where they learn to really appreciate and love each other, and the whole idea of common ground and devoting yourself even to the point of living together to the other family members. It's, it's a true example of blood being thicker than water. And just so you'll know how real we're being today, I'm just entering an underground parking terrace, and I'm going to lose you for just a moment. Linda, you've got about 
three more minutes until the break. Tell a few more of your stories about these women you were talking to. Then go to break, and then by the time we're ready to come for the second half, I'll be there again. All right. I'm happy to take over because there's so much to tell. Um, I'm not going to tell you all the details of the 10-day wedding celebration, but just to know that at the final celebration, the last day, this is uh, a girl from India. She said that they have a reception. It's much like our reception, except that they have from 500 to 1,000 guests. And I said, wow, how do you even know 500 to 1,000 people? And she said, well, I don't really. We didn't really. This is what happens. We send out the initial invitations, and then friends tell friends and tell friends, and so that people are not offended that they're not invited. I mean, that's the worst. If somebody doesn't get invited, that would like to be invited. So she said, we really don't know how many will be at the reception, which is kind of scary. But, I mean, when it's the difference between 500 and 1,000, that's scary. But I think they have a ballpark number. But it is really a big deal. And then from that day, the wife goes home to live with the husband's family. However, they do have a honeymoon first, most of them. Um, depends on your economic level. But it was just so fascinating to sit at dinner and talk to this woman. And then we went on to Pakistan. This was in uh, Abu Dhabi. And then we went on to Pakistan. And that is a fascinating country. Um, we were a little bit frightened to go, actually. We have to be honest. We were kind of scared. We didn't have a visa, which is required, but the people that were there assured us that they would They send us a letter. They said, take two passport pictures each, and somebody will meet you at the gate and walk you through the process. So we went on faith, and sure enough, there was a charming young man waiting for us at the gate. Took us into uh, the back room where the officer was, which was kind of scary. Old papers tattered everywhere in bookcases and a big, fat book. No computers anywhere, but a big fat book that said rejections for 2012, so we were a little concerned about that, but he took our stuff and worked and worked and worked and hand wrote everything for about 15 minutes. It seemed like about 45 minutes, but he finally handed us our stuff back, and we knew that we were in, except then we were delivered to a driver, a driver in the middle of the night, we arrived at 1.40, and this was about 2.30 a.m., and uh, we got in the car and drove, and honestly, we it was dark, and it was foggy or smoggy or something. It was just misty. It was like being in a magical world, and we got in this car and drove down the street from the uh, airport, which was very dark, and we were stopped by the police. We thought, oh, my gosh, we're going to end up in some interrogation center or something. <laughs> we might have been a little bit paranoid, but um, our driver jumped out and was told what to say, which is, you know, I'm just taking people to the hotel and assured them that it was all right. So um, anyway, I think we're now going to go to a little break. And with all that excitement, we'll conclude the story and then tell you a little bit about the amazing children of the Arab world when it comes to Ramadan. So we'll check in again in just a minute. So we're back. I made it out of the parking structure, came up the elevator, Linda and I are together. We've got 
15 minutes before we shoot off to the airport to head for our next beach. It's a pleasant one. It's in Hawaii. Yeah, we don't mind this one. This is so nice. Uh, we are. We in, deserve it after Pakistan. We, we do. After that wild adventure, in fact, to pick up on the story that we ended on, uh, we did. They did take us to. Um, they said a five-star hotel, but wow! When we got there, they opened up the trunk and the hood, and they um, examined everything for bombs. And then all of the roadways had these huge barricades that they had to actually put down into the road to let us pass. And then uh, we got there about 3.30 a.m., and they couldn't find a key that would work in our door. (laughs) It was a little bit crazy. You wouldn't want to visit Pakistan. If you win a free trip to Pakistan, just turn it down. No, wait. No, 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 no. (laughs) I I have to say, my favorite thing of the whole trip was uh, we did have a meeting with these great parents the next day, and then we went on a ride through the city of Lahore, and to the most amazing fort and um, mosque in the world. But the, the ride was my favorite part. It was my very favorite part of the whole All thing. right. I'll agree with you. I that loved was it. was pretty cool. It was once, so awesome. once we got over feeling frightened to death of the Taliban, we were pretty good. And <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing. This fort and palace where the Maharajas used to live, those boys had a pretty good lifestyle. Uh, they did. They had a huge uh, courtyard with water all around and then a center pedestal where the Maharaja sat, and um, his throne in the center there rotated. And so there was entertainment all around the court. And he, all, he didn't have to move. Just He just rotated around and saw. But it was... He was an audience of one, and he had entertainers by the thousand, but he also had about a thousand children, and they... Yeah, I think something like that. I mean, this is a mogul who ruled for about 500 years. This court was built in 1500, so you can guess. And then the mosque, uh, maybe shortly after that, but the mosque is the second largest in uh, Pakistan and the fifth largest in the world. It was absolutely incredible. When you see the faith that these people exhibited and the creativity in building these beautiful edifices uh, like this. I mean, this was no different than St. Paul's or any, well, it was too different, obviously, but it was built with the same kind of faith in God, and we were just overwhelmed by what we saw. So as much as you may, I don't mean to be lecturing, but as much as some of us may feel some animosity towards certain other groups and certain other religions. We've got to try to get over that and understand what good people people there are in every faith and every persuasion. Now, I will say this, that uh, I would not like to live in Pakistan. Linda, you'll agree with that. Nice place uh, to visit. Yeah, I do. Not a place to live. The people we spoke to were, were affluent Pakistanis. Most of them ran businesses. But what a life to live. Each of them, they need a bodyguard for each of their children. Um, well, some did and some didn't. They were very concerned, though, about their Kidnapping children. Kidnapping is a way of life. Yeah, it's very scary. And as we were driving through those streets, I mean, it was just a mass of humanity that was unbelievable with 
um, trucks and cars, tractors, huge trucks, and then mo- thousands of little motor scooters. What would you call them? Bikes. Tuk-tuks. Tuk-tuks in the Philippines, but they call them rickshaws. Well, no, I'm talking about the little motorcycles where four Oh, the little, they're little mopeds, on, yeah, sometimes with six people. They have four to six people on one, hanging off the edges, and... Perfectly calm, though, riding along perfectly calm with six yep. of them on a motorcycle going in and out of traffic. And in and out of 12,000 people that were around them. And we were actually going by the side of a cute little donkey who had a huge load on the back. Oh, I feel bad for that little guy. Tires and a big load and a couple of kids on top of the load, and he was plodding along, and we couldn't go any faster than Tiny he little needed. donkey. Yeah, just a little guy. And there's skinny horses everywhere, but we were watching this little donkey. And all of a sudden, it, it, this little guy just fell over. It was so he sad. He couldn't take he it anymore. He couldn't do it anymore, and it was so sad. And we went, oh, my gosh, we've got to get out and help him. And the driver said, you are not getting out. Um, a lot of people grabbed him, out. and they were kind of lifting him back up. We just hope he was okay. That was our that was our most poignant moment. I don't know why. Oh, little duck. It, sort anyway. of, it sort of epitomized the sort of overwhelming pressure that seems to be on everyone in such a crowded, polluted environment, and, but and wonderful of, people. Wonderful, wonderful people, people, a beggar sitting on the, on the street who have their own story and so on, and, and so many people in poverty. And and then, you know, when we came home, and we're not ending our story here, but I have to say I went to Costco and I, I could barely stand to put all the turkey and pies and stuff that piled in my basket and thinking, oh my goodness, we should be so grateful to live in a country where you can just go out and get what you want in your own vehicle and and eat until you're sick. And we should be grateful for all the things we take for granted. I mean, a lot of you travel to third world countries, but none are quite as sort of overpowering as, as India and Pakistan. And, uh, you know, we were trying to grapple with the fact that a lot of these people we were seeing in the old part of the town, uh, things you do every day they've never done. People have never taken a shower. They've never eaten with a knife and fork. They've never, um, you know, experienced any sort of electronics. It's just, it's amazing how how much of the world is not on the grid, so to speak. And, and you have to be, you have to come back feeling a little more grateful. But having said that, you you don't end up pitying people in every way because of their poverty because oftentimes their family structures are very strong. In fact, the guide we were with said, you know, the family structure in these poor, poor, poor families is probably stronger than anywhere else in the country because, and it's kind of ironic, but the, but the bottom line is they don't have any money to do anything. They basically hang out with each other 24-7 and they have very, very strong family bonds. So pity them and feel sorry for their circumstances. And yet many of them are really clinging to a family unity that is that is being lost in the more advanced electronic parts of the world. Well, I'll tell you something kind of startling that does really help with family unity, and that is Ramadan. I had a chance to sit at a table with eight women who were strong followers of Islam, and Ramadan, as you may or may not know, is one month a year when they fast from morning until night, sunrise until sunset. Every day. Every day for a month. I mean, this is unbelievable. They get up at 4.30 and eat, and then this year it was in August, so it was a lot of light 
uh, I think I got light about 5 a.m., and then not dark until 6 or so or 7. I don't know what time it gets dark there, but it's a long, long day. So it's at least 14 or 15 hours when they don't eat. And and I said to them, wait, do the children do this as well? And they said, well, yeah, actually, they do. Um, they decide for themselves. Sometimes the 8-year-olds start just with a couple of meals or a few hours, and then by the time they're 12, we don't force it on them, but they decide when they want to do the whole shooting match. And so they didn't say it that way. But it really was incredible that these 12-year-olds are fasting from morning until night. And uh, it was so fun to hear about how they do that. They get up at 4 o'clock and eat breakfast, and then they eat again. As soon they as can the eat while it's dark, you understand. Yeah. While it's dark, they can eat. They can't eat while it's light. And, and it's not just a ritual. They really do, the devout ones at least, and many of the ones we met were devout enough to do this, they really focus on what they're trying to improve on within themselves, within their own character, and right. within their families. Right. They think about that. I mean, we fast in our church, but one day a month for 24 Makes hours. It seems easy now, doesn't it? Makes it seem pretty easy. When we were we were actually in the Arab world once during Ramadan, and we had a cute little boy who came up to me just before we started our lecture and said, Mrs. Iyer, please, you have to stop at 6.57 because that is sunset and I am starving. And so, you know, you just do have to realize how much you admire and appreciate these people for the faith that they have and for the wonderful uh, traditions that they endure. So thanks for listening. It's been an interesting week for us. We hope it's been a good week for you. And we will see you next time on Iyer's on the Road. 